welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the Nerd Party's podcast that's focused on the uh, technical wizardry and inspirational points for filmmakers all across the firmament. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week we are going to be looking at the sports movie, the continuing quest of Mike to turn me into a baseball fan, Moneyball. But before we get to that, of course, you're here on the Nerd Party Network. You can go to thenerdparty.com and find a show to suit just about any fandom need that you have. Everything from Doctor Who to Star Wars to just general film knowledge stuff and all of those sorts of fun things. And you can also find the network over on Twitter at Join Nerd Party, the Nerd Party on Instagram. You can go to facebook.com slash the Nerd Party. And if you want to drop a line to the show, you can use the hashtag Great Shot Kid on the social networks or drop us a line at the nerdparty.com slash contact. So, again, thank you for joining us as we continue on Mike's um, daunting task to turn me maybe into a baseball fan. And Moneyball is the latest salvo for uh, anybody who's been been keeping up. We started with a discussion about For Love of the Game. And For Love of the Game takes us to Moneyball. And Mike very very generously and very sweetly made sure I got a copy of an audiobook of Moneyball. Loved the book and he also got me a copy of the film. And so that's our starting point. So Moneyball, if anybody's not familiar, is a film about the way baseball basically has come to be run, where they figured out the statistics that really judge how productive a baseball player is and what you're really paying for. And it boils down to math. You're paying for on-base percentage, and as attractive as it is to look for home runs and to look for the guy who has the right type of swagger or a good smile in front of the camera, you don't care about walks or, you know, you care about can he get on base? And if he can get on base, then he can bring in your runs and you're guaranteed. And if I'm getting this right, I'm trying to remember. If you go back to the Bill James baseball abstract, you start with X number of wins that you're pretty much going to get no matter what, just because of the law of averages. And then what you're paying for in your payroll is the amount of money per game above that number that you have to pay. So when you have somebody like the New York Yankees, who historically has had one of the most gigantic payrolls of all time, say $100 million or whatever per season, they're paying $3 million per extra win. Whereas what the Oakland Athletics did with Billy Bean is they figured out how to pay uh, $10,000 per extra win or something like that because they had a much smaller payroll and it was by switching their focus from the type of stats traditionally looked for in baseball to these stats that had more to do with, uh, with, with, with being on base. Am I stating that correctly? Yeah, pretty much. You know, essentially, you know, because of, history and because of you know people's biases and everything like that there were certain stats which were valued and certain stats which were not valued and through math they figured out that people were essentially evaluating players incorrectly and they figured out how to correctly evaluate players in an attempt to sort of buy the undervalued players and compete with the with the teams that had tons of money that they could just throw at any any problem that they have yeah well, well yeah because the the Yankees it was always pretty much 
um, guaranteed. I like I, you know, I, I toyed with a baseball fandom uh, in the past, and it was pretty much accepted that you know when you got around the time of the trade deadline and the All Star break, basically the Yankees would watch the All Star break, and then they would go and they would just pay a truckload of money for people that looked like they could hit 200 more home runs or something like that. Of course, nobody's hit 200 home runs. I'm exaggerating for effect, but it's an interesting exercise with this because for love of the game romanticizes baseball very much romanticizes, you know, the, the, the hero story of it and the, you know, the, the mental discipline and what's going on in the people, players lives and, all of that sort of thing is very much a love letter to baseball in a lot of ways. Whereas Moneyball, the book is, uh, I think, a really fascinating uh, tour through the psyche of somebody trying to figure out how to game a system. But the movie is, I really like the movie, but it has this weird sterile quality to it. It in a lot of ways. And I was wondering, do you get the same impression with that? And do you think that that has to do with the source material being different, what they're looking at being different? Or do you think that this is just the opinion of the filmmaker trying to be detached and more documentarian as it were? I I definitely see what you're saying, but at the same time, like I never thought that because if the version of Moneyball that almost got made would have gotten made, it would have been even more sterile like 10 really? times more sterile. And that when that movie didn't happen, it just broke my heart. And when I look at this, all I see is kind of like Hollywood schmaltz, you know, okay. in a sense, like, why are we talking about his daughter? I, who cares? You know, oh, this event isn't exactly the way that this played out. And it's much more sort of like everything is done for dramatic effect. Whereas originally it was going to be like, the money ball of <laughs> movies, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but yeah, I mean, I guess you, you can say that, like, I really love the music in this movie. And okay. like, that's one of the things which it's like constantly like building up to like this emotional crescendo. And then like when it reaches that crescendo, it cuts to like someone waiting for statistics to print on a, printer you know what i mean like literally that happens in the movie and it's like okay all right and we never even see what's on that paper it's just like this is the job it's looking at numbers we barely see any actual baseball action you know because it doesn't really matter what matters is you know how the team is assembled yeah so I, i definitely see what you're saying but i never think about it because i always think about the movie that was never made well, that that would be, I think that would have been more interesting too because I think you definitely wind up with a movie where you can feel by the end of it that pull back and forth uh, between the two things because since it doesn't commit to either one, when they do ha- try to have like a, an emo- like the emotional payoff ending of look at what they accomplished and Billy's going to stick with the team and everything's great, it doesn't, you don't you don't feel any sort of like swell of emotion or pride or like fist pumping where you're like yeah Billy's staying with them and they're gonna succeed. It's just okay. It's over now, which I think works very much if you're watching it and you you understand that what this is talking about is strict. Like th- this isn't about Billy Bean's human story. Like there there's very much a part of me that wishes they hadn't even cut to his past but referenced it Mm. because 
in the book, they talk about Billy Means' past. You know, he was a, a hot prospect uh, coming into the big leagues, wrestled with the idea. Um, his mother wasn't necessarily, you know, in love with it. He could have, you know, he going to Stanford and stuff like that. And because they evaluated him incorrectly and they didn't bring, they didn't, um, if you will, mentor him appropriately when he first came into the big leagues, he flames out. He has, you know, he has a big splashy start. And then, I mean, anybody who's familiar with, uh, you know, with football, American football for our international listeners knows too well the, the highly drafted quarterback rookie who has a great first season or first half of a first season and then just completely bottoms out and just hasn't taken the time to develop and, you know, the the career flames out. A very uh, easy recent example would be uh, RG3, um, you know, Robert Griffin III, for anybody who follows football. He had this kill. He had rookie of the year. He was on fire. He ran everywhere. Defenses didn't know how to cover him, you know, and it was the, you know, all of these, you know, different, um, you know, the, the play option and all of that stuff. And um, then his second season where, where he, you know, the second season that he starts is just, just completely bottoms out. Yeah. Although with, with Billy Bean, it's, it was even more so because he, you know, it, it's almost like, I don't know, maybe Johnny Manziel or something like that, where okay. it's no, like... That's a good, no, that's a good point, yeah. Like, okay. oh my God, look at how good he is in college. He is going to be, you know, a Hall of Famer when he gets to the pros. And then he gets to the pros and he is terrible. And he's yeah. out of the pros in minutes, you know? Heath Schuler would be another, for my yeah. own home team, that's another yeah. great example of a guy who gets drafted high and then just done mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and and one of the things which you know billy bean as a general manager tries to do is increase the odds that the people who he's drafting will succeed you know so and yeah. he's, he's gotten very good at that i mean one of the interesting things about the book which which we were talking about off mic is you know now that time has passed you know now that it's been 15 years yeah we can see exactly how well Billy Bean's strategy worked. Like, which are the players that he went after that succeeded, and which are the ones that didn't? Which ones did he pass on that became stars, and which ones, you know, did he have the opportunity to get, you know, but he passed on and he should have passed on? You know, which one did he? Which ones did he make the right call on? And it's interesting, you know. He he had hits and misses too, for sure. And I mean, I guess you know. As far as, you know, one of the messages in the movie, like, it doesn't matter unless you win the last game of the season. Right. He still hasn't done that. But he's still there. He's still in Oakland. He's still the GM. So, so he's still trying. So my, my question becomes this, though, because once this secret sauce comes out, uh, the, the Boston Red Sox ad adopt it, uh, arguably, um, because they bring in uh, Theo Epstein and they win their first World Series championship since Babe Ruth left town. I, I rem actually I remember because it happened um, uh, the year I got married, and oh. I had a, I have a friend who's uh, you know a, a Boston area native, and he was in my bridal party, and he was like conflicted. He was like, "Oh, oh no, this please don't let this interfere with your wedding," sort of thing. And uh, fortunately, it didn't. But um, it was. Uh, 
basically haven't teams figured out how to then turn like once the agents figure out what stats you're looking at doesn't it just sort of become a wash doesn't everybody adapt and then the salary discrepancy still plays out well there's there's two components to it uh, on the one side the answer is yes there are because when when he was doing this he wasn't the only person who was doing it he may have been the person who was best at it but there were other teams which were, had adopted it or were starting to adopt it, like the Red Sox. And when the book came out, you know, Bean, who was kind of like, whatever, you know, I'll tell you everything. Who cares? Right. Which you, know, you would think he would be smart enough not to do that. Yeah. A lot of the other teams were like, I cannot believe that he gave away our secret. You know, and now everyone is going to be looking for that stuff. And now it's going to be that much harder for us to buy these players. But the other side of it is there are still a lot of teams who don't subscribe to these ideas. They don't think he's right. I mean, one of the, I mean, you hear his voice in the movie a couple of times. Once I think it might be like a, a voice actor who's playing him essentially, but Joe Morgan, you know, Joe Morgan is a guy, he's a, he's an announcer on, you know, he does like the Sunday Mm -hmm. night game of the week, or at least he used to, he's not very good at announcing, (laughs) but he is adamantly opposed to the idea of Moneyball. He talked about how terrible the book was and you could tell that he hadn't read it. Like he talked about how Billy Bean wrote this book called Moneyball and everything like that. And it's like, mm. you're not really helping yourself. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, he he absolutely hates it. And it's become sort of a thing, like an old school versus new school. Like there's a show on the MLB network where you have um, this guy, Brian Kenny, who's a statistician, you know, sort of dude who always, like he's got his own show called, I think it's called like The Shredder where like he he basically takes like all these weird stats and like throws them into the computer and spits it out to like come up with these you know weird theories and then you've got Harold Reynolds who's the old school baseball player you know who believes in small ball and all that stuff and and they have like a show where the two of them basically just debate you know hmm. old school versus new school in terms of you know playing uh you know uh, strategies and stuff like that. So there are definitely, I mean, when the White Sox, you know, the Red Sox won using these, you know, philosophies in 2004, when the White Sox won in 2005, just the very next year, they were very much champions of the idea of playing small ball, playing, you know, with the fundamentals, you know, and, and, and everything. And hey, it worked for them. It's great, you know, whatever. Right. You know, you can't argue with success, but. Like there's a number of times in in the book where they talk about the White Sox, and every time they do, they make them sound like a bunch of idiots, and it kind of breaks my heart. But what can you do? Uh, you know, no sympathy considering my my team of choice that I've now walked away from it's, is run by a team of crack smoking monkeys, uh, so far as I can tell. So, okay, so in terms of a film, though, like. It's so fascinating because this is this is something that I watched and I really liked, but I can't tell whether I liked it because I know the source. Like, did I like it more because I know the source material and I can fill in those gaps and understand where they're working from? Or is it something where 
uh, I maybe I enjoy it less than I should because I know that source material. You know, like, am I hampered by that source material coming into it? But I, I, I keep coming back to it just has, and I, you know, and you called it out, like, I, it's not that I don't care about his his daughter or his relationship with his daughter. It's just that this is not that type of movie or when he's sitting there talking with his ex-wife and her current husband, that's Played by not Spike Jones, by the way. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't realize that he did a very good job, but it doesn't seem salient to like, this would have been a much more uh, energetic engaging movie in my opinion if they had poured that emotion like when it was him fighting with the scouts that's engaging that really the movie's alive at that point or when you find out that he can't watch the games and you know it's got he's got his little white box and he turns it on and he turns it off he turns it on and he turns it off that's a character thing and you can address his past just by having them address his past without the flashbacks without going back to those things so there's a part of me that if I had the time or the inclination would almost be interested to like try to recut this to remove some of those scenes. And I think that's what I love about it is I can see it playing in my mind without those moments. And that's what I really enjoy about it. Cause I, th- I think Brad Pitt's great. I think Jonah Goldberg's great. I really do. Um, and I thought that I, I mean, I just, it's so interesting to me because I think this is just another performance where Brad Pitt, when he first comes on screen, you're conscious for the first five minutes, that's Brad Pitt, that's Brad Pitt, that's Brad Pitt. But then as the movie progresses, he's Billy Bean. You accept it. He 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 manages to overcome a hurdle quicker in the course of a film than like a Clooney does. Clooney, it's a lot harder for me to shake whether it's Clooney in that film or not. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the... <laughs> See the the original movie, I think is, or the original idea for the movie, I think is much more in line with what you're talking about. I mean, you're right about like the stuff with the daughter. It's almost like the anti, you know, Moneyball in a sense because you know his whole thing is like personality doesn't really you know matter. Right. You know these individual quirks. It's all about just the stats and and sort of making it turning these people into commodities and and everything. And um. Okay, so originally it was Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh was supposed to direct it. Really? Why yeah. did Why didn't he? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I know. No, I mean, I know exactly the answer to the question because you know they give it to Soderbergh, and Soderbergh's like, okay, and like Steven Zalian, who's credited along with Aaron Sorkin with the script, like he had written the script, which I imagine was pretty close to what we see on the screen. And um, Soderbergh cast Brad Pitt, or Brad Pitt was a producer already or whatever, but, you know, the two of them, you know, they've made a bunch of movies together, so, you know, that was clear that that was going to happen. And Soderbergh went in and rewrote the script and basically modified it so that it would be 100% accurate to reality. Like, they talked about how, like, there was a line of dialogue where it was, like, a little joke, you know, about, like, Scott Hatterberg playing first base, and someone said, like, you know, oh, you know, like, like there's, like, a little kid, like, uh, off to the side, and he, like, fields a grounder, and they're like, maybe we should get him to play first base or something like that, and, you know, Soderbergh was like, I'm cutting that out of the movie because no one ever said that, you know, like, that kind of thing. But then he was taking it 
much, much further. He ca- he had Brad Pitt cast as Billy Bean. Essentially, everyone else in the movie was going to be played by themselves. He had cast oh. all of the original Oakland A's. He had cast Art Howard, the manager, as himself, and they were all going to basically reenact what happened that season. He was shooting it in Oakland. He was going to be using like Forrest Gump technology for the video footage for the few people who he couldn't get, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, these people who are all non-professional actors, someone who, you know, people who like Soderbergh had been working with a lot at that time in various movies like The Girlfriend Experience and Bubble, you know, they were essentially not even going to be given scripts, I don't think. They were just going to say like, well, you know what you said in this scene in your actual life. Just do that, you know? Just say what you said to this guy. You know, that kind of thing. Wow. And they were all set to go. This was happening. This was happening. It was going to start shooting on a Monday. And on the Friday before, the studio said, I can't believe we're actually spending $65 million on this this essentially experimental film about baseball, which will have no, you know, value in foreign markets, blah, 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 blah. This cannot happen. And they fired Soderbergh. And that's when they hired Aaron Sorkin to come in, rewrite the script. And then they hired Bennett Miller, who had just made Capote, to come in and direct it. And this is what we got. You know what, though? Those extra scenes with his wife and his daughter and those sorts of things suddenly make a lot more sense because this does need to play in markets where base doesn't need to, but they want this to play well in markets where baseball isn't the thing that it is to American culture historically. Yeah. And so, yeah, if they don't have that in there, wow, that makes it even an even more Hollywood... Uh, decision like you know quote unquote even more hollywood decision and it's that that's that's fascinating and i can say and the thing is i can't fault them for it no you can't fault them for it i mean from from a business standpoint it makes perfect sense i mean i don't know and in some ways i'd be like okay you have an oscar-winning filmmaker who's doing this trust him but you know I can also see, you know, what what they were thinking. And I guess as a result of this, just two little things, a little side note or whatever, but Soderbergh, being Soderbergh, being super cool, if you ask me, he was like, okay, I'm fired, which means my entire crew is fired. I have a bunch of people who are getting ready to go to work on Monday who are now out of a job. This can't happen. So he said, you know, to his whatever, his producers, his agents or whatever, like, I need to find a script as soon as humanly possible that I can direct just so that I can employ all of these people who were laid off because of me. And the script that he ended up shooting was Haywire, which is a great movie, Mm. Um, similar (laughs) to to his idea for Moneyball in that uh, he cast Gina Carano, who's a, you know, mixed martial artist. As, you know, like a a spy, you know, essentially kind of like a James Bond character and got her to, you know, beat up a bunch of, it's almost like the reverse of that, where you had like 
Brad Pitt as like the star surrounded by a bunch of non-actors. Here you have Gina Carano, a non-actor as the star, and he surrounded her with a bunch of huge names like Ewan McGregor, Michael Fassbender, Brad, or not Brad Pitt, Channing Tatum, Michael Douglas, you know. And anyway, we got that movie. We would have never gotten Haywire if, if Soderbergh hadn't been fired from Moneyball. But also, I really, really, really think that the movie that he released just a month before Moneyball came out um, contagion. Like if you watch that movie, if you watch the way it plays, if you watch how they talk about a whole bunch of really technical stuff and don't bother trying to explain it to the audience and just rely on the intelligence of the audience to pick up on what's going on and understand these concepts and everything. I really, really think that contagion was basically his version of Moneyball. Like that's what he was planning on doing with Moneyball. That's just my personal opinion. But okay, see I okay. I think I think the movie looks fine too and, and stuff like that. The the all everything you're saying about Soderbergh is the the film fan part of me who still doesn't know Soderbergh terribly well <laughs> to yours. I know that's another project. Long-term project of yours has turned me into a Soderbergh fan too, but um that's fascinating to me, but I can tell you that this film, at the very least, is good enough, and and the book Moneyball is good enough. I'm now intrigued to the point of where I want to watch baseball just so I can pick a team that does this method and a team that doesn't do this method, and like track them both through the season, and like, and that that's one of the, that's one of the interesting things that's that's teased out in this film as well as of course in the book is the people that do dismiss it as, oh, they're a bunch of cranks, oh, baseball's about intuition. Like, one of the agents in the film is like, it's about intuition, it's about your gut, it's not just about nerdy number stuff that's there and stuff. But it doesn't it doesn't mean... I think that the only people this really threatens, in all honesty, are the scouts. Yeah. Because the scouts become kind of pointless, yeah. You know, like the scouts should be going and seeing how he interacts with the team. Like you can get the stats. They shouldn't care about how he looks, how the player looks when he's out on the baseball diamond. He should be watching him when he walks into the dugout when something bad happens. He should be watching him when he walks out to the parking lot after he's had a good game or a bad game or asking people who are, you know, who are staff at the stadium. Does he treat people well? The, what does he do on the holiday? You know, like that sort of thing. Like scouts should be shifting their focus to being almost like private investigators to find out about the guy's personal life as opposed to his performance on field. Yeah, that that scout in the movie uh, from I've read he, he was he is uh, an actual scout who basically thinks that, you know, the idea of moneyball is ridiculous. Like he's basically playing himself in that movie, you know. Wow. He thinks okay. he thinks it's crazy. And, um, but you know, there's definitely that, I mean, you're right, you know, and, and there's that line, there's a number of lines in this movie or scenes in this movie that I like really take to heart as sort of like almost like personal philosophies, you know, but there's that, that scene where, you know, he says like adapt or die, you know, you've, you've got to, you've got to change your, your, your philosophy on things or whatever in order to continue to succeed. And, you know, that, that's, that's, I think, you know, sort of like key to all of this. I mean, I think that, that you're absolutely right that it's, it's threatening, you know, a certain um, type of person who is employed by the industry. 
And that's why they're so resistant to it. I mean, I certainly saw it in, you know, my industry and or still yeah. see it in my industry. And, you know, you, you got to adapt or die. I mean, that's just kind of how it, how it goes. But, yeah, there is a movie out which really is sort of the anti-moneyball. Uh, it's called The Trouble with the Curve. Have you seen this? Wait a minute. This is, I haven't Clint seen Eastwood. it. It's, yeah, that's, yes, that is very, very, yeah, okay. I, I remember seeing the ads for it and thinking that looks terrible. Is it, it is, terrible? It, yeah, it's terrible, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think my review at the time is the trouble with the curve is that it hangs out over the plate and is, you know, very easy <laughs> to hit for a home run because it's super duper obvious. Like the entire, it's such basic filmmaking and yeah the whole idea the whole point of the movie spoilers for trouble with the curve is like you may think that you know what you're doing with your statistics and everything but there's nothing uh none of that can compare to you know an actual experienced scout who can go out there and hear the way that his curveball sounds and tell from that that he's not going to succeed at the big league level or whatever it is, you know. So it's, it's a superhero movie? He has really good hearing? I mean, you can hear things like that, <laughs> but, you know, is it going to stand up to, you know... They, they leave a lot of stuff... It's... It, they, they leave a lot of stuff out that that doesn't help their point in order to make their point, and it's kind of dumb. But see, th this dumb. is, th th and the thing is, this is this is going to sound really weird, but stay with me on this one, okay? Mm -hmm. The thing with that type of point of view that always fascinates me is when, when people feel threatened, as it were, by, oh, this is a scientific explanation for this sort of thing. And let me bring it into the nerd universe, because that's, of course, where our brains work a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. A lot of people rejected the idea of midichlorians in Star Wars, right? Yeah. Like, oh, no, the Force is, you know... You can be born nowhere and know instantly and be a superpowered person with nothing and no training. Hey, that's how it works. But Lucas, of course, says, oh, well, there are midichlorians, and this explains why some people are stronger in it, some people aren't as strong in it, that sort of thing. And people say, oh, well, that takes away the magic of it. It doesn't take away the magic of it. It just means that you figure out how the magic works. It's like figuring out how, you know, a flower grows or something like that. That's still, like, when you think about the odds against that thing happening or being that thing... That's still a humbling, awesome sort of experience and idea of somebody who can go up and has a good enough eye to read a picture and the picture's body language to know whether I couldn't do that. I could, you know, you could put me up there a thousand times. I feel like the ball is coming. You know, I can't sit there and like look at, oh, that's a curve. Like if you throw a ball at me, I can't sit there and be like, that's a curve. I shouldn't swing. Oh, that's going to be outside of the plate and stuff like that. And so this scientific stuff, this Moneyball stuff, all it does is it just says these are the people that figured out the magic and they have the magic, but this is the science that explains their magic. And that's totally cool with me. Like that totally works. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I think it, it, I, I agree with your point on the whole. I, I, I think where, where I would disagree with the, the midi-chlorian thing would be that the idea is like, sort of like the the message of the movie is like you know to let's say kids like anybody could be a jedi and when you take that away then you don't take that away though you don't take that away though you really don't it's just a, like i think that the 
well, I mean, obviously, there's a whole other bigger conversation, but the whole thing with midichlorians is simply the fact that, uh, like, it's it's an easy explanation for there are some people who are born more gifted in it. It doesn't mean that somebody can't be a Jedi, because Qui-Gon even says it's in all living things. And so somebody can be a Jedi, they're just not going to be Anakin. Or maybe they're a really wise Jedi and their skill is that they can, uh, you know, see the curveball. But, you know, the the super Jedi, the the person who has a more natural... I mean, anybody... let, let Let me actually put it into martial arts sort of thing, right? If you take somebody who has an athletic... Uh, tendency, good balance, all of that stuff, they can be an incredible martial artist out of the gate, right? They have that natural skill, but they still need training to be any good. Then you take somebody who's maybe a little stocky, not as you know naturally fit as them, and that person works their tail off. They can be every bit as good and every bit as lethal, just in a different way than that person who has the natural gifts coming out of the gate. The hard work can still get you to that point, it's just going to be harder for you to get there. And that that is, you know, that, that's why I think that, like, the, you know, being dismissive of the midichlorians and stuff like that, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that somebody can't get there without hard work. It just means it's going to be more of a task for them to get to that point. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's fair. So you came for the money ball and you left with the midichlorians. Yeah. You know? There you go. So uh, if anybody wants to uh, commiserate with you, Mike, directly about how I somehow managed to hijack a baseball conversation into something about Jedi, uh, where can they find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can also find me on Trek.fm doing a show called The Edge, and also another show on Trek.fm called Stage 9 with you. That's right. I'm over on Trek FM with you doing stage nine and then you can find me back here on the nerd party network co-hosting aggressive negotiations with matthew rushing and then in my copious amounts of spare time co-hosting words with nerds with my pal craig and if you want to harass me online just look for kessel junkie uh that's where i am everywhere so thank you for joining us on this journey of moneyball and midichlorians and we will catch you next time on great shot kid and this time get the gluten-free cereal Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.